Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So, good afternoon. In this mini-retreat, you may start to realize that it's no retreat at all. And actually, we're not trying to retreat from anything. Um, I like to think of this practice more as uh, plunging than retreating. And... um, So I'd like to talk a little bit about practice in a way that is hopefully encouraging and help uh, helps to clarify for you what it is that we're doing together. Um, and listening as I'm speaking is also a kind of practice. You know, if you're uh, philosophical, probably as I'm talking, you already have a commentary going on about my commentary. If you're uh, postmodern, you probably have a commentary about your commentary, about my commentary, (laughs) about practice. Um, If you're post-postmodern, you're probably just at home writing about it. Um, I'd like to start with a little passage from uh, a Zen teacher and wonderful poet um, named Norman Fisher. The spiritual journey, the human journey, is as natural as this. We begin at home, we leave home, we return home. Even when it looks like we're going far afield, we're always on our way back. We have what we need, and we are where we are going. The spiritual journey is a journey of return. How do we make this journey? There are no maps. The path is mysterious, dark. It leads us to corners, the subtexts of our lives, the in-between, the unconscious, unknowable places. We think we know who we are and what our lives are about. But suppose we don't. Suppose our lives are not what we think they are. Suppose something else is going on, deep streams flowing underground that come to the surface only now and again in little springs, or freshets or maybe in telltale spots of moisture where weeds or scraggly flowers grow. And suppose the task of our lives is not so much to shape or control our stories so that they'll turn out according to our preference or preconception, 
but rather to recognize that our stories, the visible images of our lives, are cover stories, narratives that hide within them deeper, underground narratives that we can sense and taste now and again, but never fully comprehend. Never fully comprehend. Um, I think that a lot of times we think that a spiritual practice is taking uh, us somewhere and that there might even be something to attain. And um, then we start practicing and we realize that uh, we are failing because we're not getting anywhere. And uh, hopefully in meditation practice, which is really one of the simplest forms of practice ever, um, we can allow ourselves to fail and fail and fail and fail and fail. Uh, because there's really nothing to get. And in Norman's definition of uh, spiritual practice, it's actually a journey home. And um, one of the things that's really interesting about meditating on the breath is that it's always been there. If it wasn't there, you'd be dead. You wouldn't be here. And um, one of the interesting things about sitting on the ground is that it's also there. And uh, it's always been there. And um, meditation is really such a simple practice. And uh, what's difficult about it is everything the mind invents out of it. But not the practice itself, really just following the breath in and out and uh, waking up. And I like thinking about waking up more than I like thinking about enlightenment. Because uh, when we use the term enlightenment, or even when we use the word spiritual practice, uh, we get a sense that somehow there is something to see behind something else. Um, or that there is something one day we're going to get to, or some utopia that's outside of uh, time and space and so on. Certainly outside this body. And then we sit still and we follow the breath and we realize um, that uh, we're torturing ourselves with all the preferences that we have and um, all these narratives, some of which are so outdated, it's almost embarrassing. When I, I sit here uh, and I hear a train, uh, when I was a, a little kid, um, I grew up hanging out on these railroad tracks here on DuPont Street. And uh, every once in a while, I would jump on a train that wasn't moving and uh, smoke cigarettes and plan on um, traveling by train like my heroes, Jack Kerouac and others. And uh, then the train would start, and I'd get so freaked out, I'd jump off the train. And maybe I did this hundreds of times. And uh, the railroad tracks on DuPont Street were really the safest place for me. I loved uh, DuPont Street. And um, in fact, I started teaching in, in public also on DuPont Street. Um, uh, Esther Myers, who owned a yoga studio uh, not far from here, was my cousin. And um, uh, we hung out a lot before she passed away. And uh, the two years before she passed away, she would ask me to come to her studio a lot and uh, give talks. And um, so DuPont Street also is 
uh, that place. And this room, too. I've spent a few years now in this room teaching uh, a lot of clinicians um, about uh, this practice. And um, I could go on, but when I hear the sound of a train, it's not just the sound of a train. There's all this memory and these associations and emotions and stories. And yet, there is this strange sense that all of that is also um, gone and really has nothing to do with sitting here now and hearing the train. And the more that I conceptualize about what DuPont Street might mean or what those trains might mean, um, the more I'm not able to actually uh, be here as these trains come in and out of our um, awareness. And so it's interesting that although the past exists, uh, it's also over. And the only way we can really experience the past at all is in the present. And actually, the only way you can experience your life is in the present. You, you can't experience uh, your life outside of the present moment. And the fascinating thing about the present moment is it's never happened before. Your stories about your life have happened before, and they're tiring most of the time. Uh, there's probably a few good ones, but even they get old. And, um, and yet, at the same time, uh, the present moment has never really occurred before. It's, it's so brand new and so fresh. And sometimes people uh, say to me, you know, uh, especially in retreats like this, you know, how do you have so much energy for this practice? <laughs> you know, I get out there for walking meditation, and I'm just the, the happiest person ever. And, uh, and the more that I practice, the more I feel that way. And um, really, I find it so energizing to be able to actually um, see through these patterns um, of, in Sanskrit, they're called samsara, which often means conditioned existence or, in a way, addiction. And I like to think of it as meaninglessness. You know, that, that these patterns that we spin through in our minds over and over, actually create meaninglessness. They actually take us away from having meaningful, valuable lives. Partly because um, they're stories, and they're not really what's happening. And it's really easy to talk about. But... Um, I'm sure you're seeing in this practice that it's it's a different thing to actually work with your own mind and heart, body, and life. And um, sometimes sadness shows up and sometimes uh, pain comes and uh, sometimes uh, peace. Sometimes blossoms and sometimes weeds And um, meditation, sometimes I like to think, is a little bit like cooking vegetable soup, where uh, when you're cooking soup and you're, you're, you're turning the, um, churning uh, what's in the soup, and you look down into the pot, and sometimes a, a broccoli pops up, and then a potato, and then a carrot, and uh, then an old emotion, and then pain, and then joy. And that can be like all in 30 seconds. 
And it's interesting just sitting still and watching all of these different patterns come and go. Uh, And then they also start to settle over time. And what it is we're really noticing is not necessarily those patterns. It's reactivity. And it's approval and disapproval. And um, to watch the judging mind um, approve and disapprove, approve and disapprove, approve and disapprove, Uh, oscillating between approval and disapproval all day long. This is acceptable, this is not acceptable. This is what I like, this is what I don't like. And I mean, in some ways, uh, disapproval is just ridiculous, really. Because if something's shown up, it's shown up. And whether you approve or you disapprove, you still have to respond. And um, all great art is like this. I mean, uh, Van Gogh couldn't even uh, exchange or barter his paintings for his rent because uh, his landlord thought it was dreadful. And when Picasso moved from uh, his standard oil painting and impressions of people um, to his cubist style of splitting faces up, uh, you know, the critics thought this, no one approved. (coughs) The critics thought this was garbage. When Bob Dylan went electric, I mean, uh, you know, that Bob Dylan, you know, he was he was playing acoustic songs, and uh, one day at Albert's Hall, uh, at intermission, he changed his band and uh, came out playing electric. And, uh, you know, he got booed for a couple of hours. And um, so, I mean, who cares about approval and disapproval, really? I have a teacher that I study with, and... Um, he, he, he disapproves of everything. I mean, you go study with him, and he, he never tells you you do a good job. And he'll just complain about everyone and about how they're not really true to the form. They don't really practice. And, uh, he, you know, he'll, he'll critique every single person he knows and their practice. And uh, if you're hanging around him expecting for approval... It's going to be a real battle. And I'm sure when I leave uh, his company, he just tells everyone, oh, yeah, and he writes these books, and I don't know what he's doing there in Toronto. And then we start to see that internally, we also um, approve and disapprove of ourselves. And we stand back from ourselves, and we judge ourselves. And when you judge yourself, you devalue your life. And who are you to judge anyways? And is it helpful anyways? All the judging that we do. Um, When you judge yourself, you just create a self that you then judge. You have to split. You have to split internally. And um, 
then you're not in contact with your true nature, which is actually to forget about yourself. The core of this practice is to study the self just enough that you can see its patterns and then forget about it. I think sometimes in psychotherapy we forget this part. We study the self and we study the self and we study the self and we study, and the way we study the self has so much narrative construction in it that we just build it and build it and build it. And then we never get a chance to forget about it. And it becomes sometimes a process of addition rather than subtraction. And um, in meditation practice, when something arises in awareness, we're not interested in the content. We're not interested in the content of what's showing up. I I speak about this because I know many of you are clinicians, and uh, almost all of you, I think, actually. And um, when something arises, psychologically, we want to understand it, and uh, we think it's important, and we explore it. Um, And yet in meditation practice, we are totally uninterested in the content of what's showing up most of the time. So something shows up, and we don't associate with it. We open to the experience of it, and we watch how it arises and passes away. We're interested in the impermanence of what's moving through awareness, not the content so much. But most of us are so psychologically minded that we start to analyze what's showing up. And because we start analyzing it, we also start judging it. And then in the judging of it, we create separateness. And then we're in this kind of virtual linguistic sphere again, where we're not really there with what's happening as it arises and also passes away. And um, yet, behind the scenes, the whole time, is awareness. Awareness is like a great natural resource, just like water or fire um, or air. And it's stable. And so uh, often the term that's used to describe it is emptiness. Or um, in... uh, Japanese, it was often referred to as ku, which is the sky, vast. Now we think of the sky as like this thin layer of atmosphere. But if you could imagine once, the sky was thought of as um, bright and boundless, not not ending, not bracketed in any way. And it, it's like this sometimes when you uh, fly on an airplane. You, you can be... Uh, I had this experience this year. I was in Germany and... Uh, taking off in Frankfurt and um, several months ago, and uh, it was raining really hard. And you take off, and then within about 30 seconds, you fly through some turbulence, and then bright blue, endless, gorgeous sky. And yet, when you're on the ground and you look up, it's you know dark and gloomy, and it's raining, and it makes your posture do this. Um, And then you fly through these clouds, and behind those clouds was this kind of pure, boundless sky. 
And awareness is like this. It's operating, it seems, behind all the chattering of your mind. And when this chattering starts to settle, when the nervous system starts to settle, when the breath starts to settle, then the mind is experienced as extremely spacious. And the feeling of that is a feeling of openness, of energy, of vitality, and of interconnectedness. So in a way, meditation is not something that you really have to do because it's a natural process. All The settling just starts happening. And I hope that today you feel this. I hope that you're beginning to have the experience that when you just keep returning to the breath, that all this mind stuff just starts settling, just starts to quiet down. And this is um, opening to life. And that's why it's called spiritual practice. Because all of us want to connect with something bigger than ourselves. And uh, mostly we live indoors, and so we don't connect with... uh, subtle changes in weather patterns and we're not surrounded by animals and we don't have much of a connection to the transcendent and um, yet we desire to lose ourselves and not to lose yourself in a dissociated way I'm keeping in mind the audience here Um, or not to lose yourself in the Freudian sense of regression but actually to um, Unintegrate is the term Donald Winnicott uses, as opposed to disintegrate. To allow your uh, stories that make up yourself to fall away until you forget about yourself. And the only way to forget about yourself is to take care of yourself just enough that you can forget about yourself. And you coming here today is taking care of yourself. And you take care of yourself by really looking at what the self is. Which is a kind of practice of doubt, really. Uh, Not the kind of doubt that leads to indecision, but actually doubting who it is that is listening to these words. And doubting who is breathing. So a kind of openness starts happening because you don't know. Sometimes in Zen, this is called not knowing. And when you don't know, it means you're giving up fixed ideas about yourself and others. And uh, for those of us that have been trained in psychology, it might be harder for us to give up our fixed ideas because we're experts in it. It's like musicians who can't go listen to music anymore because they just sit and critique it. Painters who can't go to art galleries because they can't enjoy painting because they just look at everything that's wrong with the painting. Um, Is it possible for us to uh, let go of some of our theories about our psychology and actually directly look at the mind? Is this possible? Well, this is the practice. And the only way it's possible is to start to drop this tendency to judge 
and to approve and disapprove. Approving and disapproving. Attachment and aversion. And then you can start to uh, find um, love uh, for all the parts of yourself. And what's really interesting in meditation practice is, you know, even the parts of yourself that you don't really love um, have to get included. Or your practice becomes a kind of torture. So you sit and everything shows up. Uh, All the places where you're sane and all the places where you're insane. Places where you find joy and places where you don't. Um, Competition arises. I've had times on retreat where I I find myself for hours um, just comparing my practice to other people. Uh, In meditation retreat, for example, walking meditation is often optional. So... uh, I remember on one retreat sitting next to someone and uh, she would just sit through all the walking periods. That means she never got up. She just sat and sat and sat. And I remember for like two days just comparing myself to her practice. And uh, how was I compared to her? And I remember it taking two days to let that go. And... um, People in this room, I mean, you come into this room and we're all, you know, there's like 60 of us in this room. And some people in this room are really probably inspiring for you. Maybe you can recognize that there's a few people in this room who, who have been sitting a long time doing this practice. And um, then there are other people who are incredibly irritating. If we were in this room for a week, some people would just drive you totally mad. Yeah. And, um, and this is all happening in your mind. And it's fabulous material to explore. Partly because you have no choice. Because there's a form here that's holding you. And finally you can actually work with this stuff rather than just projecting it onto everybody else, hoping that they'll change. So in front of awareness, or with awareness, Approving and disapproving start falling apart. It's a wonderful Japanese poem that says, um, under the cherry blossoms, there is no such thing as a stranger. Has anybody here ever hung out under cherry blossoms? You can do this under maple leaves also. Um, You sit long enough at the foot of a tree, hanging out and watching maple leaves fall. And uh, when the mind gets quiet... Um, the world doesn't feel strange. People are not strangers. There's a, there's a feeling that arises of interconnection and intimacy. And that's really the goal of this practice, is intimacy, is love, is compassion, which just seems to naturally arise when self-centeredness subsides. You don't really have to cultivate love. Uh, You don't have to make it happen. Uh, You don't have to cultivate compassion or empathy. Uh, It just shows up. 
when your self-image falls away, when you can forget about yourself. And um, we take care of ourselves in order to forget ourselves. And that might sound like a paradox, but it's not. Or maybe it is, and it's okay. Are there any questions, comments about practice, comments about the day? Yes, at the back. Why? It doesn't have to be done slowly. Uh, all over the world, walking meditation is done at different speeds. Um, because we operate at a pretty fast speed, most of us, um, I like to walk fairly slow. And the walking meditation today is quite fast compared to how we usually walk uh, in, in formal meditation. Um, so I'm just speeding it up a little bit. Um, but I want to have enough time that we can slow down and we can really feel lifting, stepping, placing, breathing, and so on. So we can feel the body walking. And... Um, if we walk too quickly, um, we can start to get the breath agitated, and then we're sort of in the same mind state that we usually find ourselves in during the day. Um, subway walking, and so on. So um, it's nice to slow down the process so we can actually just tune in to the body walking. And we can take walking meditation much, much further. Eventually, we, 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 we start uh, bringing in questions into our walking meditation, like, who is walking? So as we walk, we breathe, and we ask this question, who's walking? And when you do that and you walk slowly, you start to experience the body walking, just like you can experience the body breathing, without there being an agent walking. And so there are many layers to walking meditation. And the first is really just slowing down and pausing and feeling the body walking without pushing. Can't we turn it around and observe nature as a meditation instead of our own bodies? What we're going through? Yes, I would say that your body, however, is the largest part of the natural world you can ever study. Because you can't study anything outside of you without including you. You can't experience the light in this room without your eyes, the sound in this room without your ears. So you can't actually have an experience of reality independent of your body. So we start with the body, and that's the part of the natural world that we study. Yeah. And I would say that as you start to do this, you start forgetting about the body and opening up to a world much greater than the body until it's inseparable. Now, with all this meditation today, yeah. I've become very irritated. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm very irritated. 
very irritated right now. Yeah. Um, I don't know why. Yeah. Any any ideas or comments on that? No. <laughs> um, but if mindfulness is the intention to pay attention, or some people like to say paying attention on purpose, um, and opening up to what's occurring, then there's no excuse for not being mindful. So if agitation is arising, even if rage is arising, um, you can bring mindfulness to agitation and to anger and to discomfort so that um, we can open to what's there without acting it out. And um, one of the nice things about formal practice is it helps us recognize our potential for being irritated, for being angry, and not acting on it, but actually experiencing it uh, fully without doing something about it. And this is really quite interesting. Yeah. And without analyzing it. Yeah. And in five minutes, you'll be feeling something else. Um, I'm a relative newbie to this, and I'm not a um, clinician. Uh -huh. yep. I come from the business world. And, uh -huh. um, I'm finding the language and the ideas um, intriguing, but quite inaccessible or challenging. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, you said you had a six-year-old. How do you explain to your six-year-old your practice and what you do? I don't need to. Uh, it works the other way around, mostly. Uh, my, my son is, you know, way more present than I am most of the time. Way more playful. Um, and um, so I try to let him explain things to me more than I do with him. Because um, I don't make him practice. And uh, so if I talk to him about what meditation is, um, which is pretty rarely... Um, uh, we just talk about slowing down and paying attention. And uh, he gets that. Yeah. If some of the language that I'm using today doesn't necessarily uh, uh, compute for you, uh, that's fine. And try and stay with what your experience is when you're sitting. Um, because in a way, one of the things that's quite empowering about this practice is it's about not relying on any kind of external authority. So, in a way, you can have direct experience to the nature of reality without any belief system, without ideology. I haven't asked anybody today to commit to a creation story, to belief in reincarnation, to not believe in reincarnation. I haven't asked you to talk about or not talk about God. And yet, at the same time, we can have very deep uh, experience of um, how things actually are. So all the words are secondary. So I would say your experience first, and then hopefully over time, some of the technical lingo gets assimilated. And because I know about half the room, um, I'm sort of trying to speak at a level where some of the 
raw beginners mm -hmm. and some of the more experienced practitioners can kind of meet. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it'll connect, sometimes it won't. But that's why we're here for two days. I found the second walking meditation, I had a different reaction. I was observing myself. Uh -huh. um, I, I didn't feel that I was able to go at my own pace. Uh -huh. Because yeah. I take smaller strides than maybe some other people yeah. might. Yeah. And so um, I felt that I was aware of the fact that don't let too much of a gap form between you and the person in front of you. So sometimes I was going faster, uh -huh. sometimes I was going slower, and in yeah. that process I was losing sight of my mindfulness. Uh -huh. And that was, I think, part of my own agitation that I was starting to experience. Because uh -huh. in the earlier practice, uh -huh. where there was a gap, uh, or several gaps that you uh -huh. had mentioned, um, I, I felt I was walking at my own pace for my own self, as opposed uh -huh. to trying to keep up. So I yeah. observed that there was a difference, yeah. depending on you know, what yeah. the... I guess what the directive was or what the suggestion yeah. was. Yeah. Um, so then I tried to talk to myself about how can I just be in the moment then? Just being aware of yeah. this, being in the moment, yeah. and seeing if you can be mindfully walking faster. Well, it's so easy to be mindful when you're controlling how you want it to be. Because it's like, oh, my life is going at the pace I want, and now I can be mindful. But most of the time, life doesn't work like that. Well, no, people don't drive at the pace we want to. People don't walk on the Absolutely. sidewalk at the pace we want to. So when you to. said, make sure you keep up, I felt like I was having a rule imposed upon me. Yes. Which I was mindful of. And I thought, I don't yeah. like this. The way that I would yeah. walk if I was walking mindfully by myself yeah. was different. But you're not. I you're having I'm a rule imposed on you. Uh, yeah. There's a very particular form, and you're not getting to walk by yourself. And it's so frustrating. Because, I, you know, I've spent time, you know, I'm quite anti-authoritarian and, you know, I hate form. And then I remember one day going to a monastery and starting to practice. And the thing I was most concerned about was the form, all the rules. And then I remember I loved it because the bell rings, you bow, you do this, then it's time to eat. You don't have to think about anything. You just can focus on the practice. And so I'm going to suggest just today and tomorrow to give up to the form a little bit. And if, there's a cert if there are certain conditions where you find it easier to practice mindfulness, then that's where it's easy to practice. And if you find that when certain um, forms feel like they're being imposed, go with it. Go with it and see if you can practice in those conditions also. There's I was something just aware to... that there was more judgment in my mind yeah. the second time around yeah. than the first time around. Yeah. And that was kind of interesting because normally I would sort of be like judging the judging, but yeah. I wasn't. I was just sort of going with it and saying, yeah. how do you move within this now Yeah. and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, and also that, you know, it's also nice sometimes in walking meditation to just get out of yourself once you start to feel your feet walking, and just feel the whole group walking. The whole group walking. It's just one body walking. And um, that's a very interesting experience to have. Yeah. So uh, I'm with you. You know, I don't, I don't like all the rules. And then yet, there's something about the form that contains things that then allows tremendous freedom. And you'll see that there will be periods today that parts of the form will be irritating. And this interesting thing happens after two days of practice where a kind of joy 
and energy and enthusiasm starts coming out of the form. So give over to the form for two days. I'm a stickler for form. Any other questions, comments? Yeah. When I've done meditation before, I've done the breathing meditation, but it's been focusing on uh, the air in your nose and the points at which you switch between when the air is not flowing, if you will. Uh Um, I have the impression that you do it more looking at belly breathing and being more focused on the breathing in your belly. Is that correct? And does it make a difference? Yes, it makes a difference, and it just depends on the group and the context. Um, if you find it easier to focus on the breath in the nose, then you can focus on the breath in the nose. Well, it may be just more that that's what I'm used to. Yeah. When you focus on the breath in the belly, there's a lot more sensation, and there's a lot less sensation when you focus on the breath in the nose. So when you want to do concentration practices it's really good to focus on the breath in the nose because there's a lot less sensation happening. But for a lot of beginners, uh, especially, um, we're not in our bodies. And so it's really good to focus on the breath in the belly because it keeps the awareness low and in the body. So depending on the person, we'll do different things. Yeah. Um, And there's no best way. Uh, it's good to have quite a toolbox. Um, but I would say that if you can really stay with the breath in the nostrils and it's a little bit easier for you than in the belly or more enjoyable, then stay with it in the nostrils. It's okay. Just you. Yeah. Hi, uh, again. <laughs> so you're talking about energy. Energy develops within the body from meditation. Uh-huh. I've never found that through meditation. Yeah. Where does it come from? How do you develop that? What do you mean by energy? You're saying that you get more energy from meditation, more energized. That there's interest. That there's interest in what's happening. Yeah, that's what I mean by energy. So, for me, meditation is more about relaxation, not about getting energized. Forget energized. Interest. Interest. Yeah. There's, like... Like the energy shows up as being interested in what's happening from moment to moment to moment. Yeah. And that's how it develops. Yeah. And so, but that can only happen once there's some relaxation. So they go together. Yeah. So if you just keep coming back to your breathing, you will start to relax. But the goal of this practice is not relaxation. It's being awake. And um, that's why we're sitting up. That's why the spine's vertical. It's why we're not lying down. It's about being awake. Yeah. Uh-huh. Kind of on that. I'm curious on, um, just as far as formal practice at home, when yeah. you should do it. Like sometimes I just feel like meditating, but it's usually when I'm feeling really great and I want to yeah. capture it and, and be in the moment. Yeah. And I'm kind of curious on that kind of reactive practice versus every morning, 6.30, go for a half an hour. Yeah. or whatever it might be, and, and kind of dovetailing on that too, sometimes I have an urge to connect it up with exercise, like go for a run and and then do some meditation afterwards. And I'm not yeah. sure if that's, you know, um, I, I don't think it's good or bad, but um, 
suggestive practice on, on what to do on a daily basis? Yeah. I'm going to save that till tomorrow. Okay. Because at the end of the day tomorrow, I'm going to talk about how to have a daily practice. Yeah. Because that will be your homework for the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> Any other comments, questions, concerns? Yeah. I think it's just a point of clarification. And uh, with the mindfulness of the, the walking meditation, yeah. uh, I guess the familiarity I had was more one of uh, engaging your senses while you walk uh-huh. and kind of paying attention in a way you wouldn't normally pay attention. Yeah. Is that any different than what we were doing, just a different focus, or can you help me understand? Say more about what you're... Well, I, I think it would be something like John Kabat-Zinn, something like that, uh-huh. listening to the tapes, talking about engaging senses um, while you walk, so you'd be paying attention to the, the air on your skin, uh, the sounds that you would hear. As you, as you walk here, That's exactly what we're doing. Sorry? That's exactly what we're doing. Yeah. We're just starting small. Okay. So the first thing I want you to really focus on is the feet okay. and the feeling of the feet walking. And then you'll notice that when you're focused on the feeling of the feet walking, that the ears are quite relaxed mm-hmm. and that you might be tuned into sound in a way that you normally wouldn't be if you were rushing down the road. And then you'll notice that uh, you start to feel the skin, the breathing changes, maybe the eyes start picking up color that um, you don't usually pick up. And it just, it's almost like the radar just expands and expands and expands. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what we're doing. But we're starting really small. So if I said, let's just walk down the road and just be aware of everything, most people would just be checking out, you know, the house is for sale or something. <laughs> um, so we're trying to keep it kind of contained. Yeah. 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 Any other questions? Clarification? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think um, when we're doing sitting meditation here, I can, I can get into that quite easily. But when we're doing the walking meditation, my challenge is more of Boredom, yeah. yeah. Paying attention to my feet. Yeah. Paying attention to my breathing. Yeah. And now my mind is starting to wander. Yeah. So, um, there's a wonderful critical theorist who, who has this wonderful term, um, we're amusing ourselves to death mm-hmm. in reference to our entertainment culture. And um, when boredom arises, we open to boredom, and we feel boredom. And it's surprising how actually one of the uh, patterns that show up that people have the hardest time with in meditation (coughs) is actually boredom. Because a lot of us are not used to being bored. Um, Because we have blackberries and iPhones, and iPods, and email, and um, it's interesting, you know, there's a new uh, 
um, uh, idea in my son's school, so this is, you know, JK to grade 6, of how to spend a little more time letting kids be bored when they're bored. That it seems there's a kind of intolerance, not just from the children, but from the teachers, when kids are bored. And actually how to leave them alone when they're bored, to have enough time in boredom that something new can transform and they become interested in something else. So for us, when boredom is arising, we treat it like anything else that's arising. We become interested in it. Oh, this is what boredom is like. And boredom becomes quite interesting. Wow, boredom. <laughs> um, I'm exaggerating slightly, but uh, the point is, is how fabulous that you've recognized its boredom, uh, because the tendency is, you know, a little hint of boredom and we're at the fridge, you know? A little bit of boredom and we're buying something. So here we're opening to this experience of boredom and catching it and pausing and then allowing boredom to arise and pass away, and it will. What's dangerous is when you don't catch it and next thing you know you're unconsciously acting it out. Yeah? What I recognized was I'd, I'd be walking along and I'd get bored and then i have this radio that plays in my head. So a song comes up and I start singing along with the song and then I recognize that I'm singing along with the song in my head and that's yeah. not what I'm supposed to be doing. So I, that brings me back to, to the breathing and yeah. Yeah. walking. It brings you back to your life mm -hmm. as opposed to just being in a radio station. And, um, you know, one of the things in a two-day session like this, if there's anything that any of you learn that I would want you to come away from, it's that the mind and the nerves are in such a high level of reactivity that most of us are not so good at actually being able to work with the mind. And usually just seeing that becomes a motivation for practice. And um, so, you know, if you're having a hard time and if this is new and the body is uncomfortable and you start to see after a couple days of what your mind can produce, um, then this has been a successful workshop. And... Um, you know, always, you know, one of the things I tell people who teach meditation is, you know, when you have beginner students, you know, you need to support them long enough that they can start to really get uncomfortable and see where they're unskillful. And that's how you learn. You know? Otherwise, it's just me giving you philosophy. And that's not helpful. You mentioned earlier how your six-year-old is one of the most present and playful people, and I would say the same for my kids, but I can't count on one hand the number of adults I would kind of characterize that way. Uh -huh. what, what do you think happens while people grow up to lose that sense of presence? School. Yeah. I think it's different for different kids. But what is it that makes any of us lose our original 
trust. An outside voice. Yeah. Our, our original nature and our creativity and our silliness and our idiosyncraticness. Um, and um, so it's interesting to watch kids as they transition into school. Um, and uh, there needs to be so much room um, outside of the form of institutional education um, for play. And um, I'd say the same thing for adults. You know, uh, for those of you that have been on retreat with me, you know that once, uh, I think quite a few of you in here, you know that once we start to get into the form of meditation, we start doing other exercises so that we can also play. And it's interesting how hard it is for adults to play. Um, and um, so um, I think this is a part of our experience that we, te- we start to integrate once we can settle down. Last question. I'm having maybe the opposite problem most people here. I'm from the I'm from the country, uh-huh. so um, it's an assault to the senses. I've uh-huh. always been in the country, never lived even in a small town. Yeah. Um, so when I come to the country or to the city, yeah. From the moment I I'm in traffic, the subway sounds, uh-huh. um, the walking meditation is the absolute hardest for me. I walk two and a half hours in the bush every day. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the the sounds of the traffic and yeah. I just feel uh, you know discombobulated. Yeah. The, everything's wired up. Yeah. And my head's just the voice. I just want to get back to the bush. I'm smoking back. Yeah. And and I can't hear. I can't hear birds. I see yeah. no animals. It's, yeah. You know. So I'm. Did you see any squirrels today? <laughs> Flip side. No, I was focused on my feet. <laughs> so, yeah, I, you know, so I would watch this part of your mind that makes a distinction between the city and the country. Um, in that moment, when you're walking down that street, um, walk down that street. That's also life. The city is a great place of opening to life. And if your mind frames the city, oh, this is the city, then you will miss all of the birds. There were so many birds on the walk this afternoon. And we can't hear them because we've already decided something. Yeah? And um, so, yes, it creates a different pattern in the nervous system. It gives rise to different kinds of thoughts. But watch your attitude. Right, And you can see how a subtle change in attitude can actually transfigure what it is that you're seeing and hearing and tasting and listening to. And um, whether you see a bear in the bush or a squirrel on the sidewalk running around, um, that's diverse life. That squirrel is not less valuable than the bear. And... Um, so how to wake up to what is happening here before the mind starts 
creating all these categories. The city and the country are wonderful places to experience life. Um, we don't have to decide. Okay, thank you so much for coming here today. Um, it's really wonderful to be able to share this practice and um, also just to start to sense some of you uh, who are starting to um, find your stride. And um, I encourage you uh, to also know that um, you may not realize, but you're probably operating at a little slower um, more sensitive pace than usual. And so when you leave here today, to really just go slow, to eat well tonight, to go to bed early, to take care of your body, um, take a bath, go for a walk, um, to do whatever is necessary so that you take care of yourself so that you're ready in the morning to continue this practice, so that you continue tonight when you go to sleep tonight, lie down in the bed and just focus on the breath. As you start to fall asleep, the breath will just trail off and you'll sleep and then wake up and find the breath and you'll fall asleep again. And just follow the breath all the way until you're sleeping. When you wake up in the morning, wake up and find your breathing. Sometimes we wake up and have like a freak out, you know. Um, you look in the mirror or whatever. Um, but wake up and find your breathing and start the day with your breathing. We were talking about children, you know. And so, you know, a, a really nice way of teaching meditation to children is to remind them that their breath is their best friend. And their best friend who's never going to leave them who's totally loyal. And uh, so this is a good way when kids wake up anxious is to find their friend. And uh, for adults also, to wake up and find your breathing. And we'll come into the room tomorrow morning for 9 o'clock in silence um, and we'll set up and we'll start practicing uh, right off the bat. So, good night. Thank you very much. <laughs>